Hi, Dustin. How are you? Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1 as we continue our study in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, I would like to thank you for your prayers as I continue to heal. It's been an interesting journey, and uh, I'm getting a little better by the day. Um, God is faithful, and I appreciate your faithfulness in praying for me. This ABF hour, and then later on in the month, I'm going to be doing uh, some teaching on the origins of Halloween and the, the neo-paganism that is so predominant in our culture today and has even crept into our Christian culture. And I'm going to be doing that for our teenagers in the ABF hour uh, beginning today. And I would invite, if there are any parents who would uh, like to come and see what crazy things Pastor Jim's going to talk about, I would invite you to come up there and uh, hear about the origins of, of what we know to be Halloween and uh, what the Christian ought to be doing in light of all of those things. So parents of teenagers, if you'd like to join us, uh, I will put the invitation out to you. And uh, I think it's an important thing that we connect our teenagers with the contemporary culture that we live in and help them to be able to sort through and discern uh, right from almost right, to, to understand uh, some of the biggest issues of our day uh, from a, a distinctly biblical perspective. As we get to Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, I'd remind you that Peter is writing to a similar group, but perhaps some additional people in his second letter. The first letter, of course, was addressing those who were going through really difficult times of persecution under that Roman government and the increasing pressures against Christianity that I see are so, so prevalent and pronounced even in our culture today. The outspokenness of some people in their anti-Christian bias ought to uh, be a concern to all of us and, and, and create a shudder. At the same time, there is a quiet confidence that we have that uh, our God still sits on the throne and everything's going to be okay. But there's a tension and a paradox that we must all address and deal with in this culture of the day, uh, especially when we begin to replace God, His Word, and uh, faithfulness and obedience to that Word with what I see as an increasing faithfulness, not to God, but to the powers that be on this earth. It's almost as if we're being asked to, to begin to bow down and cater to government officials uh, because they know best. And if you've been following uh, the acting Governor Hochul in New York, um, she asked us to be her apostles. And just some dangerous verbiage taking place today. We're, we're in a time of persecution. And what is a Christian to do about that? Well, Peter, in his second letter, is addressing perhaps some of those who were recipients of the first letter, but, but even more so, some of those people in Asia Minor who were um, now beginning to see some of the, the twisted truth and false doctrines taught out in the culture at large and trickling into their local church ministries. And Peter's writing to them to address and strengthen believers and to equip the pastors of those churches 
to be painfully aware of twisted truth and, and give them avenues to address that twisted truth. The problem sometimes in Christianity is we take love as never confronting anything, but true love confronts particularly twisted truth that is detrimental and harmful to individual Christians in the body of Christ. And uh, Peter pulls no punches. Jude pulls no punches. Paul pulls no punches when he, when he speaks of how to address this doctrinal heresy and, and the doctrinal twisted truth so prevalent in churches. And it comes with, much of the time, persecution. And as Christians begin to feel the weight of persecution, there is this tendency to get out from under the weight and to step back but from, from key and pivotal doctrines that the world seems offensive. And as we back away from that, we are opening the door for the twisted truth. And we see it today in gender identity, sexual ethos, and, and, and morality, and in so many areas of our culture. And pastors and God's people, those genuinely saved, are called to be the front line of defense of things that are true and to point out the twisted truth that is so real in our culture today. The letter, of course, is traced to Simon Peter, an apostle called by God to salvation and commissioned as an apostle to preach the gospel to every creature. His words are inspired to address the culture of that day. And again, as he's writing to Christians in Asia Minor, he is expanding probably his audience from only those persecuted to those who are dealing with twisted truth within the confines, not just of the culture, but in their own particular areas of service and local church. He's preparing them for his eventual martyrdom. The apostles are not going to be around forever. As they pay the ultimate penalty and price for their faithfulness to the truth, they set an example for the rest of the believers. But they also need to equip and entrust the rest of believers left behind after this generation of apostles dies out to fight the good fight, and he's trying to get them ready to do the things that as an apostle he does as he passes from this life to the next life, and uh, he even says that within the context of this body of teaching. So he's dealing with false teachings, twisted truth. He's dealing with false teachers. He's dealing with lives that are lived in an essential kind of capacity, and he's writing, as he did in the first letter, in an eschatological kind of way to deal with the coming judgment. And if you miss anything else in this book, if you go to chapter 3, you will see that Peter is making it very clear that there is an ultimate judge in everyone, everyone, even those false teachers guilty of twisting truth will be held accountable. This earth and its evil will be dissolved and done away with, and the King of kings and Lord of lords will assume His rightful place. And then it is believers who can take a deep breath knowing all as well. Between now and then, there's some hard things. And if you think it's hard now, not desiring to, the, to be the bearer of, of bad news, it's going to get worse. Are you ready? How can you be ready? Well, I'm glad you asked because Peter's going to address that. He says, this is how you get ready. 
This is how you prepare. These are the things that are important in your Christian life as you deal in a pagan world and the increase of persecution and false teachers and teachings, twisted truth being embraced even by God's people. God forbid Peter dresses all of this within his context of his second letter. Father, I pray that you would bless us. As we spend time in your Word today, I pray that uh, it would become alive to us through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would glean and gain wisdom and knowledge from it, as well as, Father, I pray that we will take seriously the warnings of this particular section of Scripture. As always, my heart is heavy for people who think they know but may not know, people who think they're okay but aren't okay. Even Peter addresses this in this text. Father, I pray that you'd give us a heaviness of heart to speak truth into a culture of lies, to stand strong against twisted truth, and be so consumed by care for those in the body that we are willing to speak up and speak out, that you might be glorified, that souls might be rescued, that those who have grown weary and distracted might might find some focus in their lives, that the very intent of Peter in this second letter would be our intent as we live in increasingly pagan times. As we're faithful to the text, I pray that you'd give us wisdom and discernment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Peter, as he deals with spiritual growth in this text, and we addressed it just briefly last week, is dealing with a process of spiritual growth that once one places their personal faith in Christ for salvation, and by the way, that's in Christ alone, once they place their faith in Christ alone for salvation, they're not done. That is simply the beginning of the journey. And unfortunately today, just as as Peter was writing, there are some who have taken that objective faith in Christ, believing certain things about Christ and His person and His work, embracing salvation, but disconnecting that with the rest of their life and turning away from all of those commands of obedience that are contained in the New Testament. And Peter, as he addresses that, is wrestling with who is it that really knows? Who is it that's really protected? Who is it that's really shielded in this crooked and perverse generation? And he gives us some idea about this in the context of this letter. If you were to quickly look in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter is writing, you therefore, beloved, he is writing to true and genuine believers… Knowing this beforehand, knowing that there is a judgment coming and and that we will give an account for everything and the crooked will be made straight and evil will finally succumb to the goodness and righteousness of God both in eternity and in the world as we know, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability." He's concerned about genuine believers losing their stability by uh, pursuing these twisted truths and fanciful lies that are so much like truth 
that we've lost our ability to discern. He's, he's writing to those people. I sense that in the body today, there are those people who've lost their ability to discern. And because of that loss of ability to discern, they've lost their stability. They're, they're torn in a couple of different directions, and they're consumed with fear today about what's happening in our world. Peter's calling them to, to a different sense and an eschatological perspective of knowing that the judgment is coming. God is going to, to deal with all of this. So he calls them to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to grow, to, to continue to move forward in, in grace and in knowledge. That's a really critically important term throughout this whole second letter, and ultimately, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity, amen. Even in perilous times, God is the one who receives all of the glory, but his glory will be realized to the fullest extent the day of eternity. So Peter, as he addresses those who are a little shaky in their faith, those who have been captured by some of those changes in their world, the persecution that, that is affecting them, that, that the tendency to try and back away from, from absolute truth and obedience, he doesn't want them to lose their stability. So he's writing to prepare them for these difficult times. Uh, look what he says all the way back in chapter 1. Of 1 Peter, or 2 Peter, excuse me, verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. What qualities? Well, we'll get to that in a second. I intend to always remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. He's speaking to genuine believers. He says, I think it is right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Now, he is giving us the indication that he understands that he is at the latter stages of his life. He may even be writing from, from prison in Rome, suffering persecution for his faith. And he says, verse 14, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, he understands the consequence of his faith. He understands that they will no longer have him to lean on and rely on to deal with the hard things. He's saying, I'm writing to protect you and to prepare you for that eschatological future, and I'm writing so that you remain true to the faith, the faith that you've embraced, the faith that you've been established in, and the very faith that's being threatened by false teaching and false teachers. He states, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. I probably didn't take this serious enough early on in my ministry. After all, I'm a young guy, right? This is way down the road in the future. I'm not so young anymore. I don't know how many years God would grace me to stay in the pulpit and teach. I'll do it as long as He wants me to with as much passion, although the consequence for preaching truth passionately today is severe, even within the body. But I'll keep doing it. What I do want to know, and what I do want to be assured of, and what I do want to rest in, that I've left no stone unturned. So when I'm gone, you don't abandon. You don't walk away. You don't lose your stability, but you always look to the book and believe that a better day is coming. I will constantly and continually remind you of that. With well, a full understanding 
A lot of pastors don't get this, that God doesn't need me. He'll take care of you. He'll keep you. He'll protect you. He will give you, through His Holy Spirit, wisdom to deal with twisted truth. He will give you the only stability afforded under the sun. So there's that paradox of the necessity of preaching the Word with passion and the understanding of, I need to do a job and do it well. Remember, Paul, I finished the course. I've I've finished the fight. I've, I've kept the faith. It's that tension of, this is, this is God doing this, but I hold some responsibility. It's exactly what Peter's going to say to the recipients of the letter, and I'm going to say to you. It's God who keeps us. But you have some responsibilities in all this. And those responsibilities are, are clear and firm in Scripture, and the text, of course, will address this. He is saying, when I I'm dead and gone. I pray that the effort that I've made will pass on to you and that you will make every effort as well to recall these things, the truth, and stand firm in a culture of twisted truth that you might know. In the context of the Christian faith, knowledge is a critically important thing. Our faith begins with the decisive knowledge of who God is our own personal sinfulness, and God's remedy through His Son, Jesus Christ. We have an objective faith. We have a faith that is based on and and rooted in, grounded in, and founded in none other than Jesus Christ. And as we embrace that faith in Jesus Christ through the objectivity of the gospel and the truth claims of Christ by acknowledging and recognizing who He is and what He's accomplished for us, that faith has theoretical and personal implications. It's not a faith that we talk away and then live our life the way we want to. God forbid. It is a faith that changes everything. So within this context, he also speaks of knowledge by by speaking of of knowing, a, a knowledge that is acquired and developed over the course of the Christian world that has practical and ethical implications. And he addresses those in the church who are twisting the truth, and we looked at last week, especially those in chapter 2, by dealing with those who have embraced an ethical and moral libertinism. And you say, well, what does that really mean? A libertine is a person who rejects any absolute moral boundaries and lives a life of liberty from constraints. No one can tell me what to do. I will live according to my emotions and the desires of the flesh. He points out in chapter 2 that, that these false teachers were living in that kind of sensuality. And in a, a lifestyle with disregard of any kind of authority. Have you noticed that in our world today? There is absolutely no appreciation more submission, a big theme of his first letter, toward anyone in authority any longer. And it goes from uh, the political authorities, and it boils down to, to school and education, and it's even a part of many people's home lives. There is no respect for the order of the culture, and the culture has spun into a, a, a crazy chaos, uh, even in, in those who who profess to know the truth. There, there's, there's no submission to, to authority. There's no submission to absolute truth. Everything becomes a, 
a Christian liberty. Let me tell you this morning, not everything is a Christian liberty. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you are free to do something. The Bible must guide every decision, every intent of our heart, and it must confront every twisted truth. And today, libertinism has twisted truth and told us that, that God loves us enough that we should pursue our own personal desires, do what works for us. That is not biblical Christianity. In fact, Jesus says, if you love me, here's the way you live. Keep my commandments. One of the most consistent aspects of the term libertine or moral libertinism is the rejection of any kind of prevailing or established code or codes of conduct. No one can tell me what to do. Have you noticed how prevalent that is in our culture today? I make the rules. That is a twisted truth. It's not to be part of this assembly of believers, and there are false teachers who have brought this notion in. So, Peter addresses the importance of knowing in verse 3 quickly as a way of review. His divine power, meaning God and Savior Jesus Christ, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. What do you suppose that means? Well, let's try this. All things. Everything in life, everything under the sun, God has spoken to by way of principle and precept. There are many things about our faith that are absolutely objectively true. But there's a subjective aspect of our faith as well. And the Bible doesn't address specifically so many issues of life. So we must take this objective truth of principle found in the Word of God and think clearly based on our knowledge, what is it that God would have me to do in this particular situation or this particular challenge? The Scripture provides you with that wisdom. That's where you go to make these difficult decisions. He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, a virtuous life by which He has granted to us precious and very great promises, the superlative to the nth degree. The promises that we have in Christ are absolutely glorious. When you're feeling down and defeated and overwhelmed by the world, go back and reflect on some of the things you've learned in these letters of Peter. Did you know that you were chosen by God before the foundation of the earth? Because He loved you, He chose you. He chose to forgive you. He chose to rescue you from your sin. We are elect and chosen by God. Now, if you are elect and chosen by God, why are you afraid of man? That's a great and precious promise. He tells us in 1 Peter that, that Christ is our living hope. So many, even in Christendom, depict a Christ who still hangs on a cross. Uh, my Christ is not on a cross, and He's not in the grave. He is alive. He is real, and He's there for us. He's our living hope. I love the promise in 1 Peter where Peter reminds us that this same Christ who saved us is guarding our salvation. You know what that means? <laughs> Nobody can take it from you. The King of kings and the Lord of lords has stamped His stamp of ownership upon you and has said, mine, mine. It doesn't mean bad things don't happen. 
doesn't mean persecution doesn't come. It doesn't mean we, lose our, we, we don't lose our way sometimes, but we are eternally secured in Jesus Christ, filled with His Holy Spirit, and we are guarded even in the worst of times in life. Are you thankful for that? Some people say, but Pastor Jim, you don't know what I've been through. If God's guarding me, how come I'm going through these difficult times and occasions? I can relate to that really well. Thank you. My response always, at least in my own life, is, could you imagine how much worse it would be if I wasn't guarded by my Savior? You say, how much worse could it be? I could lose my life, and yet you're guarded by your Savior, and to be absent from this body means to be present with the Lord. You don't think that's a precious promise? What a glorious truth, but it is all rooted in Christ. What a blessing to know that He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You don't have to make it up. You don't have to figure it out. He has given you what you need to live holy lives, and He has allowed you to escape the corruption that is in the world and all of the sinful desire of corruption that we face and address every single day, even by false teachers. I had a professor and my seminary education, Danny Bowen, happened to be a professor, but also was a, an anesthetist. He was a doctor, and he tied in a lot of those medical experiences with, with faith. And he writes a book, a Teaching for Wisdom. So he says, well, what now? Okay, so God's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So, so, so God is guarding us through, through Jesus Christ. So, so we've escaped the corruption in the world and all of that sinful desire. So, so what do we do now when the world is, is kind of pressing in on us? Well, that's exactly what Peter addresses. Look what he says in verse 5. For this very reason, so next, here's what you do now, because of all of those great and precious promises, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. When you're in the midst of those spiritual battles, when you're contending with twisted truth, when you're feeling the weight of persecution, you're struggling with life in general because it hasn't worked out the way you desired. How do you go on? How do you deal with it? Where do you go? It's exactly what Peter is addressing. Because of all of that, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Every effort, diligence, a strong effort a sense of urgency to add to your faith. He is talking about the objective faith that is found in Jesus Christ. He's talking about the, the objective faith that is contained in the Word of God. Make every effort to add to your faith those objective things, virtue. Now he kind of moves from that objective kind of faith to, to how this all fleshes out, what we might call subjective faith. Now, let's be clear. Subjective faith isn't my faith and your faith. Faith is only in Christ. Don't forget that. The subjective aspect of faith is, okay, so what do these promises, what, what does all of these things pertaining to life and godliness mean in my life? How do I make this real? How does this happen? How do I apply my faith? Make every effort then to supplement your faith 
with virtue. When he says supplement, he's not saying that you are contributing in any way to your personal security in Christ. You can't add nor take away from that. He's talking about adding in your spiritual walk, supplementing in your spiritual walk through sanctification, a godly lifestyle that matches the things that you say are true. Again, another paradox of the Christian life. We must make every effort, but it's the Holy Spirit that grants us growth. There's nothing about your life in salvation and nothing about your life in sanctification that you can accomplish on your own as you put the time and work into becoming obedient, even in the, 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 the gray areas of life and Scripture, drawing on these precious promises and the things that pertain to life and godliness, we are dependent on the Holy Spirit to help us understand the truth and apply that truth in such a way that our faith now has a component of virtue, moral excellence, moral excellence. Virtue or goodness. In essence, he's saying, you can't just speak it. You have to live it now. See, when you don't grow past that objective faith of, I was saved 20 years ago, but that really doesn't matter in my life. If you don't grow through that, you are going to lose your stability in this world. You're going to lose your way. You must grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. You must learn to, to take all of these principles of life and godliness and pro- apply them to, to, to life. And instead of being libertine, no one can tell me what to do, I'll make my own choices. No, you need to make choices that are morally excellent based on the things that you have learned in the Scripture. Supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. There's that knowledge again, using our minds to gain insight and application to real-life issues. It is a spiritual discernment that comes only, listen to this, it comes only through the Scripture. Second Peter chapter 1, we read where Peter uh, says, and, and we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It is not your own personal stylistic faith. It is faith in Christ built on the principles of the Word, and no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. It almost appears as if in chapter two, or excuse me, the end of chapter one, he is addressing the very culture in which we live. Let me put this together for you. Peter, just prior to this, is talking about being at the transfiguration of Christ that's recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew. It was a glorious thing. They got a glimpse of the glory of God in Jesus Christ on the top of the mountain. They wanted to build houses and booths and stay there. They were on the mountaintop of spiritual experience. This was the pinnacle. This was the the peak. This was as good as it could get. The emotional rush and the emotional impact of seeing the glory of Christ. Those three apostles on that mountain not wanting to go down into the real world anymore, tainted by sin and destruction. 
Peter says, I can't rely on emotional experiences. Because emotional experiences come and go. In fact, he said, you have something even more important than those emotional experiences. Speaking from, from testimony. Don't you recall that emotional experience wasn't enough to sustain him? The servant girl said, aren't you with Jesus? I don't know the man. Experience will not get you through this crazy life. But you have something that can. It's the Word of God. It's the prophecy of the Scripture. So add your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge of the Word and applying that Word to the real things in life. And as you apply that Word, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and knowledge self control. See how he's dealing with these same libertine, sensual people, false teachers in chapter 2? You can't be driven by your emotions and your fleshly desires. You must be driven by the truth, and the truth will bring self-control. Now, I don't want a show of hands, but how many have really captured the essence of self-control? Most of us are still working on that, aren't we? Those of you who, who have, that's another message. We're work in progress. When we lose our way, we go back to the book. When we're tempted to be drawn away by our own sensuality and the lust of the… We go back to self-control. And in that self-control, it is simply talking about a self-discipline. Paul said, I beat my body daily to keep it in check the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Not so easy to overcome. So knowledge helps us overcome and develop a self-control. And self-control leads to a steadfastness, a perseverance, the ability to remain under even when suffering through hard and difficult things. We are living in a world of hard and difficult things. And we need steadfastness and perseverance. And, and it comes from the Word. And as Peter addresses it both in the first letter and the second letter, it comes from the eschatological perspective that Jesus is coming again. He's going to deal with this crooked and perverse generation and make all things new. In the midst of your perseverance and steadfastness, make every effort to live a life of godliness. It goes along with the quorum Deo. Godliness is the outworking of our faith where we live and we speak and we operate with the knowledge, being fully conscious and before the face of God, living a life of reverence for God. The highest priority of the Christian life is that godlike living. For those who stress Christian liberty over the call to godliness, I like how R.C. Sproul addresses this in such a succinct way. God is not going to negotiate His holiness in order to accommodate you. God is not interested in what you think and what you feel. His holiness is sure. We're called to that life of holiness, and, and God doesn't change that, and we can't change that, accepting all of these… Ab this is exactly what these people who are twisting truth were doing. God doesn't accommodate us in all of this. He calls us to holiness, and He does so in the first letter, chapter 1 of First Peter. 
to godliness, brotherly affection. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, based on that phileos. you ever been to an athletic contest in Philadelphia, not a lot of brotherly love there. So it's calling us even to build such meaningful relationships within the confines of God's chosen and elect that we can step out of this crazy world and rely on each other build a a life of uh, intimate and meaningful relationships when the world continues to spin out of control. The failure to build those relationships of brotherly love with, with God's people, separating yourself from the body, will lead to the temptation of compromise and some of the very things that Paul or Peter speaks against within this context. Brotherly affection or brotherly love spoken of by by John in his epistle in 1 John is not the kind of love that the world talks about today. If you were paying attention to Governor Hochul's comments, love only goes so far, and when you stop doing what I tell you to do, I'm not going to love you anymore. You're stupid. You're uninformed. You're ignorant. That's not the brotherly love that he's talking about. He's talking about a genuine, heartfelt compassion to other believers in the body who, who may not be exactly like you or make the same decisions that you might make. And then he says, with brotherly affection, I want you to build your life on love, agape love, a love of choice, even for those who persecute. Remember what Jesus said? I said, do you love your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you. It's easy for this to tumble into a hatred that we justify by Scripture, but that's not what we're called to. We must look at those who are behind the evil in our culture today and the undermining of Christian truth and the supplanting of, of simple common sense. Speak boldly and affectionately against that. But have we forgotten that they're spiritually captive? captive. I've been blinded by the evil one. Somehow, we must maintain a sensitivity that they are an eternal soul and in need of the truth, as opposed to the hatred and vitriol that can easily come out of all of our mouths, myself included. Brotherly affection means I'll tell you the truth even if it hurts because I care about you. Godliness that is expressed in an agape kind of love says, You're evil, but I know you're captive to the evil one, and I will pray for your soul. He's saying you need to flesh this out. This needs to become real even when it comes to your enemies, and that's a hard ask sometimes, isn't it? In essence, he's saying spiritual growth is important. And the importance of spiritual growth within the context begins to be rounded out in verse 8. He says, for if these qualities are yours and increasing… If you are growing in the grace and knowledge, chapter 3, verse 18, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If. This isn't a spiritual ladder where you do one right after the other, nor is the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 a smorgasbord where you can pick one and not another. 
This may happen differently in all of our lives, but these are qualities that we have to possess when persecution arises and twisted truth becomes the order of the day. Remember, He's trying to prepare them for the things that are going to come, for His absence and for staying strong with an increasing faith that keeps you from being ineffective and unfruitful, useless and unproductive and barren, someone who claims the name of Christ that has no fruit. You don't want to be called those things. You don't want to be put in that category. So, so what now? Add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, etc., etc., and etc. It's all based on the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, the principles of the truth of Scripture. And if we want to live effective and fruitful lives in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, we must take that objective truth and that objective faith and flesh it out in subjective ways in our life to the best of our ability. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. When you're only looking at the here and now, when you're only looking at today, when you're only looking at the situation that you're in this very moment and not looking at the big picture, it is easy to get buried in this world, just buried by the evil and the chaos. How do we keep from being buried in this world? Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and to virtue with knowledge, etc., and etc. Ben Franklin, in Poor Richard's Almanac, said, well done is better than well said. Here's how, here's how James says it, but be doers of the Word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. One of the most grave errors of fundamentalism is making sure that our theology is so impeccable, and it never is and so perfect, and we have all of the right canned answers that we forget that that theology matters today. Seminaries sometimes champion that. I think that for all of us, we must understand the personal dimension of our faith, moving from that objectivity of Christ and Christ alone, the very foundation of our life, objectively from the principles of Scripture to applying those in a subjective kind of fashion to everyday life so that we're not ineffective or unfruitful. He says in verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. You can't even see the truth, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. What a haunting, haunting statement. Have you forgotten Sometimes our doctrine is so succinct that it becomes deeply impersonal. Have you forgotten that you were dead in your trespasses and sin? 
God sent His only begotten Son into this world to rescue you for the payment of the penalty for your sin on the cross of Calvary? Have you forgotten that? Is grace no longer amazing to you? Is mercy no longer applicable to you? Have you forgotten? Some of us have forgotten. We've become so big in and of ourselves and so destined to do what makes us feel good that we've forgotten from whence we've come. We all can forget. Let me remind you that Peter knows, as well as anyone, what forgetting costs you. (laughs) I don't even know the man. And when he remembered, he went out and wept bitterly. If your Christianity is what you do on Sunday, you're in trouble. You're not going to be stable in this world. You're going to be overrun by twisted truth and false teachers and beaten down by your circumstances. When we forget that we've been cleansed from our former sins and therefore have no right to return from them, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. So he says, therefore, brothers, speaking to genuine believers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is Peter saying here? He's addressing different kinds of people. He's addressing the unsaved who know they're unsaved and have no interest in the truth. He's telling them there's consequences for that behavior. He's addressing those who are truly children of the King, but have kind of lost contact with Him. And they're living their lives on their own terms right now, and, and they're no longer stable, and they're doubting their salvation, and they're overwhelmed by the world. And He says, you've forgotten. You've forgotten. No one will pluck you out of my Father's hand. Have you forgotten? And He's writing to encourage them to have courage and later times. It's also writing to saved who who know they truly are born again by saying, for this reason, make every effort. It's time to grow up spiritually. But most importantly, perhaps he's pointing out that there are some people who are not genuine believers who think they're okay. And he's saying, you're not okay. You're unfruitful and barren and absent of the truth. Those are the people I worry about most. They know the answers to the questions. They clean up well for Sunday morning. Their faith doesn't seem to matter any other time of the week. It's almost as if we're living in the same age that Peter is addressing in the context of the book. Make no mistake about it. Your faith is in Christ and Christ alone, and no one can rob you of that faith. That faith isn't to sit idle. That faith takes effort. It takes pursuit. It takes hard work. It takes diligence. It takes stability to stand up as Satan beats you down day after day after day. Peter's saying, get ready. It's coming coming. And someone who knows the right things and doesn't live the right way, we must be concerned 
for their souls. I've shared this with a few people. I've shared it several times with Bill Cole. I worry on Sunday morning when I look at all of these people. Some of them think they're okay and they're not okay. I'm worried about that. Peter was worried about that. So add to your faith virtue, the virtue knowledge, the knowledge self-control, self-control steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection. And if you are indeed saved, may your life be characterized by agape love. And if you truly love Him with all of your heart and soul and might and mind, you will not be barren and unfruitful. But it takes some effort. And that's what he's addressing in the context of 2 Peter. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. I love that he uses fall and not fail, because <laughs> we're all a bunch of bumbling idiots at times and stumble and fall often. We fail in our lives often, but we will never fall from grace. We can never be plucked out of the Father's hand, and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. When the world presses in, the only way we know that is by adding to our faith with every effort possible, shaping, molding, and allowing the Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of His Son. As we return to those verses next week, I want to encourage you, don't ever forget what He has done for you. Don't get in the way of what He's doing in you, and get ready. Because although the best is yet to come, there's an unleashing of evil prior to the return of Christ that we have to get ready to face. In Christ, and in the growth that we experience based on that foundation. Father, so real and applicable to all of our lives, especially to those who feel they've got it all figured out. Sometimes, Lord, we think we've got it all figured out and we're asking all of the wrong questions. Keep us from being unfruitful and barren stir us to beat our bodies daily to add to our faith. Bless us through the ministry of Your Holy Spirit who, who honors that diligence and hard work and effort and, and shapes us and conforms us to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for all in this place in times of persecution and twisted truth. For all of us, Father, I'd ask that You would bring stability, and that we would be faithful in reminding always of all things that pertain to life and godliness, and that You would make us steadfast, the courage of perseverance to stand when others fall. And may it be for Your glory alone as we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.